Welcome to the LA Public Health Podcast for Wednesday, August 19th, 2020. I'm Steve Baldwin, and today's COVID-19 press briefing includes comments led by Dr. Barbara Ferrer, Director of the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Thank you for listening, and to keep up with our department on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at LA Public Health. And now, here's Dr. Ferrer. Yes, good afternoon, everyone, and and thanks so much uh, for being with us. I'd like to update you today on some of the data we've looked at throughout the pandemic on disproportionate rates of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths among communities of color and among people who are living in under-resourced communities. So I want to start today um, by really looking over time what these numbers tell us that uh, the impact is of COVID-19 in many of these communities. So I take the first slide. Thank you. Uh, This table shows the total number of cases, hospitalizations, and mortality rates by race and ethnicity. The numbers represent what we call cumulative rates. So we've been accumulating this information from the start of the pandemic all the way through August 17th. And as you can see, there are disturbingly high rates across the board for Latinx, Latino, Latina communities, Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander community, black community, and African American, uh, American Indian and Alaskan Natives. Um, And this in particular when compared to the experiences that we see in communities uh, with people who are white and communities with people who are Asian. Uh, And this is pretty much across the board. Uh, For example, you can see on here that Native Hawaiian and Pacific Pacific Islander residents, even though they have a small number of cases, their case rate is actually over 3,000 cases per 100,000 people. And this is both the highest case rate and six times higher than the case rate, the cumulative case rate for white residents uh, here in LA County. Latinx, Latinos, Latinas have experienced over 350 hospitalizations per 100,000 people, while white and Asian residents have cumulative hospitalization rates that's around 100 hospitalizations per 100,000 people. Uh, Black residents, uh, if you look on this table, you'll see they have a cumulative mortality rate of 56 uh, deaths per 100,000 people, and this is more than double the rate for that of white residents. We'll take the next slide. Uh, and while it's very important for us to understand the impact of disproportionately, disproportionality over time, we also wanna look at the current rates to see if we can notice any impact on our efforts to try to reduce the gaps. So this table outlines the current case, hospitalization, and death rates by race and ethnicity. Because this represents the current data, the numbers are so much smaller here, and we're unable to show reliable rates for the larger categories of race and ethnicity. We're only able to show uh, data for the larger categories of race and ethnicity data, Latinx, black, white, and Asian communities. And while you see that there's still significant disproportionality, uh, we are noting, even just on this table, a significant decrease in the mortality rate among black residents. Uh, when compared to Latinx, whites, and Asians. They now have the second lowest mortality rate amongst these four population groups, with only Asian residents having a lower rate of death. We'll take the next slide. 
We can look at our data over time to better understand uh, when the gaps have been most pronounced and when we've seen signs of improvements. This slide shows the rate of cases per 100,000 people in LA County by race and ethnicity from May 1st through August 9th. During July spike in case numbers, you can see that uh, where the, particularly with the yellow line going so high, all groups saw increases in the rate of cases. But this yellow line, uh, which represents the experience of cases among Latino, Latina, Latinx residents, um, shows that this group actually had not only the highest rate, but the steepest increase in cases uh, during, this, during the month of July. On July 21st, the case rate amongst Latinx spiked to 194 cases per 100,000 people, about four times the rate for white residents on the same day, which was about 48 cases per 100,000 people. At the same date, the, resident, the rate for black residents was 78 cases per 100,000 people. Uh, one factor that contributed to this inequity that we saw play out over time but became super pronounced uh, during the month of July is that our Lat Latino Latinx residents, our African-American black residents, are most likely to have been working all along in essential industries and in some low-wage jobs where there were few workplace protections, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic. And their communities have therefore over time seen way more spread where there's now more community transmission along with transmission at some of the work sites where these workers may be working. At the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't know enough about asymptomatic spread to ensure that essential workers that weren't working at healthcare facilities were protected from the spread of the virus. Uh, since April, we've made a lot of changes, including requiring all workplaces to institute rigorous infection control and distancing measures that create more safety for workers and customers. And this includes the requirement for everyone to wear a face covering. And I'm gonna discuss in a few minutes how we're addressing this inequity through some of our enhanced enforcement efforts, our technical assistance for employers, and proactive visits uh, to gauge compliance in some of the higher risk uh, workplaces. But fortunately, as you can see from this slide, the rate of cases is decreasing for all groups, and the gaps, in fact, have closed slightly. For August 9th, the most recent data that we have on this graph, the case rate for Latino residents was 91 cases per 100,000 people, three times the rate of white residents who experienced 28 cases per 100,000 people, and for African Americans, the rate decreased to 38 cases per 100,000 people, all of this shows that we are slightly uh, narrowing the gap uh, for the populations that have had really been the hardest hit. Next slide, please. Similar uh, to the previous slide that showed disproportionality among case rates by race and ethnicity, this graph shows death rates by race and ethnicity, and it highlights the continued devastating impact amongst black and brown residents. Again, you'll see that Latino residents are dying at rates far higher than other groups. Six deaths per 100,000 people at its highest point, again in mid-July, and that's the yellow line that you see at the top. The death rate for black residents was four deaths per 100,000 people. Uh, that's three times higher than the rate for white residents, which is at 1.3 deaths per 100,000 people. 
And here again, uh, the news is overall uh, positive because death rates are decreasing across all groups, and we're thankful for this. We're also here closing the gap. The current mortality rate for black residents is 1.7 deaths per 100,000 people, and that's only slightly higher than that of white residents, whose mortality rate is one death per 100,000 people. Unfortunately, the death rate amongst Latino residents, while decreasing, is still almost two and a half times higher at 2.4 deaths per 100,000 people. But you can see on the slide that, again, not only are we seeing decreases, but we are starting to see a narrowing of the gap. We'll take the next slide, please. Um, this, is, this slide shows us the cumulative rate of cases and mortality by income levels. And you can see, again, we have a similar picture uh, of those communities that have higher levels of poverty, uh, have, again, higher rates of both cases and deaths. Uh, as the income level increases, cases and mortality rates are decreasing. People living in the most under-resourced areas of the county have a case rate that is more than double that of people living in areas with the lowest level of poverty. People in the highest poverty areas had a mortality rate that's really a startling four times greater than that of people in areas with the highest incomes. The next slide, please. And we can look at some of this over time as well. Um, and this is, again, we're going to look at this now by uh, neighborhood poverty levels. And you can see from this slide that all residents in L.A. County, from the highest income areas to the lowest resourced areas, experienced that big spike in cases in July. And then again, as this graph shows, uh, we all started seeing uh, a decrease. But the graph shows that the people in the areas with the fewest resources, represented by that orange line at the top, saw not only the highest rates of cases throughout the entire pandemic, um, but also, in fact, uh, now have seen one of the sharpest increases, both them and the yellow line, which represents uh, people with significant poverty, not as high as, as the orange line. Um, at the highest point on July 15th, the case rate amongst people living in areas with the fewest resources was 341 cases per 100,000 people. And this is over twice the rate of people who were living in the highest income areas at 145 cases per 100,000 people. Uh, and here, while the gap closed slightly, uh, not significantly, uh, the rate of cases in the most under-resourced communities on August 9th was 181 per 100,000 people, and the rate of cases uh, in neighborhoods with the highest income levels uh, was uh, slightly under 100 per 100,000 people. Again, we're starting to see some narrowing, but not as much as we would hope for. Um, the gap uh, between uh, people uh, living in the lowest and highest resource communities for deaths, though, uh, also appears to show some narrowing. And I'll take the next slide. At its peak on June 10th, the mortality rate for people living in communities with the fewest resources was seven deaths per 100,000 people. And that was seven times higher than that of people who were living in communities with the most resources, who had a death rate of one person per 100,000 people, one death per 100,000 people. On August 9th, the death rate among people who live in areas with the fewest resources was 4.6 deaths per 100,000 people, which is four times that 
of the death rate in the highest resource communities, which continue to have a mortality rate that stayed fairly stable at one death per 100,000 people. So we've decreased from seven times to four times. It's still an extraordinary, an extraordinary gap um, and, and you know, really stands for a lot of disproportionality and a lot of dis devastation uh, among the Latinx the Latino community. But again, uh, some of our efforts may be starting um, to show uh, our ability to actually narrow the gap. We'll take the next slide. Um, and we do have a long way to go, as you've seen, to actually reduce and eliminate the gaps that we see in COVID-19 health outcomes. But as I've noted, uh, we started to see some progress. And the question is for all of us, what factors do we think may be contributing to some of the progress that we're seeing? Um, I do think um, that uh, testing and access to testing is one of the areas uh, that, I, that I would uh, estimate at this point has some responsibility for narrowing the gap because it allows people to be identified early on as being positive and then they're able to isolate and their close contacts are able in fact to quarantine which reduces community transmission as well as then further reduces transmission that may happen at workplaces. And we're seeing from this slide that people who are living now in under-resourced areas have fairly high rates of testing and access to testing. As a matter of fact, those people who lived in the most under-resourced areas had the highest rate of testing at almost 20,000 tests per 100,000 people. Again, um, this is cumulative over time. Uh, I, we have the amazing work of Dr. Galley and her talented team and our city and community partners to thank for improving access to testing across the communities that needed these resources the most. And we're deeply appreciative of all the efforts that have been made to ensure that there is improved access to this essential service. Another strategy that we've been using to try and reduce the disproportionality is improving our efforts to protect the health of workers by making workplaces as safe as possible. And we'll take the next slide. Uh, we continue, this is a busy slide and, and I apologize. Uh, we continue to investigate businesses and you can see the different kinds of businesses. Uh, for non-compliance of the health officer orders. Uh, with the realization that transmission at workplaces is fueling some of the inequities our communities are experiencing, our inspectors tripled the number of monthly investigations from 2,877 investigations in March to 9,683 investigations in July. To date, uh, there have been investigations at almost 30,000 workplaces. We'll take the next slide, please. Uh, this graph shows uh, the increase in investigations by our environmental health team. Um, and I think these numbers that you're seeing represent both complaints and the work we do through some of our normal uh, inspection routes. We'll take the next slide. As our enforcement efforts have ramped up, uh, we've been hopeful that fewer work sites uh, will, be, will be refusing to come into compliance with the health officer orders. Uh, this table shows that the number of closings of businesses for violations of the health officer order is decreasing from 30 businesses that were closed uh, in, in April to 23 businesses that were closed in July. And this happened, these closures, in spite of the fact that we tripled the number of inspections in July. So the ratio of closures to inspections has dropped significantly. We do intend to keep our inspectors responding to complaints 
performing routine investigations at business sites, particularly at those sites that pose a higher risk to the employees. We're also working with the Board of Supervisors and our community partners to establish worker health councils that can assist in all efforts to protect workers and provide support to those who are infected and exposed uh, to COVID-19. And I want to thank our labor partners as well who have been setting up uh, strategies for making sure that workers uh, that are unionized also have an easy way to report complaints and concerns that they're seeing when they're going to work. I do encourage businesses to contact us if they have questions about how to best comply with the health officer order. And as a reminder, the order is, um, is legally binding, uh, it's enforceable, and it, these are requirements and directives that businesses do need to follow. Uh, businesses do play a really important role in slowing the spread. And the actions and policies uh, that, are, that are adhered to at a business site uh, can have enormous impact on being able to slow the spread both in our community and preventing outbreaks at work sites. And I want to thank the employers that are doing their very best to be in compliance. I also want to note that workers should be calling us if they're concerned about working conditions at their work site. And you can call us and report anonymously. You don't need to give us your names. So if you're worried about losing your job or having uh, your friends lose their jobs because you're reporting to us, please be assured that you are allowed to report complaints and concerns anonymously at 888-700-9995. And this number you can call from 8 in the morning till 5 in the evening, uh, Monday through Friday. Uh, customers who uh, are go into sites, workplaces, office buildings, stores, you can also report concerns if you see a business that's not in compliance, even if it's a business that's not usually regulated by our health department. These include office-based work sites and shopping centers. You can submit a complaint to us, and our team will work with our partner agencies to respond. It's only by working together that we can continue to implement the solutions and take the actions that we need to take to reduce the devastating impact of this pandemic and the way we do that is by ensuring that resources are targeted to the highest hit communities. And now I want to update you on our daily status. I am sad to report an additional 61 deaths today. 26 of the people who passed away are over the age of 80, and 17 people who passed away in this age group had underlying health conditions. 20 people who died are between the ages of 65 and 79, and 14 people who passed away had underlying health conditions in this age group. Six people passed away between the ages of 50 and 64, and four of the six people had underlying health conditions. Three of the people who died are between the ages of 30 and 49, and three of the people who passed away in this age group had underlying health conditions. One person who passed away was between the ages of 18 and 29, and this person did not have underlying health conditions. Information on the five deaths that are reported today by the City of Long Beach are available at longbeach.gov. This does bring the total number of deaths to staggering 5,392 people that have passed away in LA County. We're thinking of everyone across our communities who are grieving today the loss of a loved one who passed away from COVID-19. And we are very sorry for your loss. 
92% of the people who passed away uh, had underlying health conditions. And as I've noted before, this number has not changed. Uh, but with our death rate being so high, this means hundreds and hundreds of people who have died did not have underlying health conditions. So everyone needs to take all of the precautions possible uh, because um, anyone uh, can have a anyone, anyone in our community uh, can face a devastating impact from COVID-19. We're reporting 1,956 new cases today. This includes 100 cases from the state's backlog and a few hundred cases uh, from the lab that delayed their reporting yesterday. This does bring the total number of cases in LA County to uh, 225,827. Uh, this includes 9,795 total cases reported by our partners in the city of Long Beach and 2,248 cases reported by the city of Pasadena, both which have their own independent uh, health departments. Uh, we're reporting uh, 1,380 confirmed cases amongst people experiencing homelessness. And uh, that number has arisen by a few uh, new cases uh, at every time I've been reporting. Uh, I want to thank all of the providers who are working to make sure that uh, we're able to refer people who are experiencing homelessness to isolation and quarantine sites uh, so they can isolate for the duration of their illness. There's 1,378 confirmed cases that are currently hospitalized. And again, uh, we've seen a downward trend uh, for the last two and a half weeks in the number of people that are hospitalized each day. 32% of the people who are hospitalized are confirmed cases in the ICU. And uh, about 19% are people who are on ventilators. We've investigated now a total of 1,494 residential congregate settings and non-residential settings with at least one confirmed case of COVID-19. Of these, we currently have 886 active investigations and we've closed investigations at 608 sites. Uh, as a reminder, we close an investigation when at that site there hasn't been a new case for 14 consecutive days. Residential settings include nursing homes, assisted living facilities, shelters, treatment centers, supportive living, and correctional facilities. Non-residential settings include workplaces, food and retail, and educational settings. The total number now of confirmed cases in institutional settings is 30,440. This includes 15,748 cases among residents and 14,692 cases among staff. I am sad to report that 2,451 residents who lived in institutional settings have passed away from COVID-19. 2,218 of the people who passed away who were living in institutional settings did reside in skilled nursing facilities. Of the 56 uh, newly reported deaths today, this excludes deaths in Long Beach, 12 were uh, residents who were living in our skilled nursing facilities. These deaths are devastating, and to all who are grieving people who passed away in institutional settings from COVID-19, we extend our heartfelt sorrow to you and your loved ones. We're reporting 3,517 confirmed cases at some point in our jail facilities. 3,125 are among people who are incarcerated 
and 392 are among staff. The Sheriff's Office is reporting today for their facilities there are 20 people who are incarcerated who are positive, 48 people who are incarcerated who are in isolation, and 1,030 who are quarantined. There are 206 cases in the state prison, 146 among people who are incarcerated, and 60 among staff. And there are 758 cases in the federal prison facilities. 742 are among people who are incarcerated, and 16 are among staff. The juvenile facilities, there are now 137 cases, 58 are among youth, and 79 are among staff. Over 2.1 million people uh, in L.A. County have been tested and had their results reported to the L.A. County Department of Public Health, and 10% of all of the people who have been tested were positive. In closing, I do want to note that COVID-19 has shined a stark light on systemic racism and the reality of in inequitable outcomes uh, for people around their health. Uh, and it was what I showed in the data that I presented today and what we've seen in data that we have presented before. Uh, this is not new, and unfortunately, it's not going to go away uh, once we're on the other side of the pandemic. Uh, and while public health and all of our partners, community partners, county department partners, uh, cities, um, and the state are working hard to address uh, how we can, in fact, reduce the disproportionate burden of COVID-19 on uh, communities of color um, by doing increased testing, by offering more protections in our workplace, uh, by really uh, focusing on getting additional resources uh, to support people who need to quarantine and isolate uh, in their homes or in quarantine and isolation facilities. Uh, it's not enough. Uh, we need to address the factors that are resulting in the unequal distribution of the very needed resources for optimal health. And this will require a more expansive effort that focuses on racial and economic justice. All of us can work together to allocate appropriately resources that are needed. All of us can work together to strengthen systems that change the conditions that contribute to inequitable outcomes during the pandemic. And we need to start this work, continue this work now, and uh, commit to doing this work long after the pandemic has left our communities. Uh, thanks a million to everyone who's leading this work and working tirelessly to fight against hatred and racism uh, and to build a more just county, country, and world. We join with you in this most important work. And now I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Christina DeGalli, the Director of the Department of Health Services. Hi, good afternoon. I'll provide a brief update today on three topics. First, the DHS hospital bed demand modeling effort. Second, our community-based testing efforts to expand capacity for testing in vulnerable communities. And third, just touch briefly a topic I know is, is uh, close to many parents' minds and hearts, which is the return to the reality of distance learning. So first, with respect to the model, as always, the slides are present on the website of the county website and also the DHS website in both English and Spanish. And my continued thanks to Dr. Lewis and his entire COVID hospital bed demand modeling team for their work throughout this pandemic. 
As my colleague Dr. Lewis shared last week, the number of new patients with COVID-19 that are requiring hospitalization each day has continued to decrease, though the slope of that de decrease has flattened out and is not quite as steep as it was last week. We should not expect that steep decline to continue in the same way that we've become accustomed over the past couple of weeks. That's simply the nature of infections. They are gonna stay around with us and COVID-19 is going to be with us for a while. We have to remember that this is a sprint. This is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And while we may feel like we're running very quickly, we need to be able to maintain and sustain the effort and energy for a long time. The progress over the past few weeks is very significant and notable. That's because of the efforts that each of you have all been doing to wear your face covering, wash your hands, maintain your physical distance from others, limit intermingling and mixing outside of your household, try to keep any mixing that you are doing in outdoor environments and other critical steps. But we need to be able to keep this up. We have to be consistent and diligent in our pace and our efforts to keep further spread of the virus at bay. We should not let the positive news, and I do think those declines are positive news that we should celebrate, but we can't let that progress make us become complacent and relax too much into complacency that would cause us to let up on those core public health practices. The transmission number, or R, that we speak of and post in the slides every week is currently estimated at 0.92. Last week, the estimate was 0.86, reflecting, again, remember, what was happening in our communities about three weeks ago. We will have to watch the data carefully over the next week to know if this small increase from 0.86 to 0.92 is, in fact, significant. Regardless, please know it is significant that the R remains below one. Remember, the R signifies how many people are infected on average for every case infection that happens. So if the R is and is able to remain less than one, that means the number of infections and cases will gradually decrease over time. Based on the current estimate for R, the number of current available hospital beds, the number of ICU beds, and the number of ventilators is expected to remain adequate over at least the next four weeks. I want to share my gratitude to the staff of the hospitals, both public and private, who worked so tirelessly over the last weeks and months of this pandemic to serve the patients, both those with COVID as well as those without COVID, while simultaneously working to prepare their facilities for a surge in potential patients to come. I know that this is difficult work, that many people are physically and emotionally tired, they haven't necessarily had time off to recharge, and they're facing different pressures on both a personal and a professional perspective. My thanks and gratitude to each of you for your efforts to serve our patients and our communities so well. Shifting now to testing. In terms of testing over the past few weeks, we have worked quickly to increase access to testing in the vulnerable communities that need it most. On July 15th, about a month ago, I talked about the reality of what we were seeing in the data and showed some hotspot maps and data that we had developed based on Department of Public Health data and with their input. COVID-19 was, as we know, disproportionately impacting certain communities more than others. And Dr. Ferrer walked through some of those charts with you this afternoon. Low-income communities and communities of color are specifically and disproportionately impacted. 
We took a data-driven approach looking at communities in a variety of ways to determine where and how we needed to expand access to testing across the county. Now, as a result of that effort, we have expanded testing within county-operated sites, as well as launched an additional eight community-based county-operated testing sites over the past month. All eight of these new sites are located in the vulnerable communities that demonstrated both undue burden from COVID in terms of mortality, as well as low testing rates and high test positivity rates. As a result of the expansion of efforts in testing, LA County supported testing sites now have a capacity to test up to 64,000 residents a week, an increase of 40, from 40,000 slots per week, which was where we sat out a month ago. This allows us to better reach even more than before the vulnerable communities who need more access to testing. Appointments are and continue to be available online or through the 211 system if you don't have access to the internet. This is on top of the capacity that is also available through the city-operated sites as well as the state-operated and state-supported sites, as well as those other sites that are operated by the Department of Health Services clinics or by other private providers. Increasingly, equity, equity and access to testing is critical, as we know, but our progress doesn't mean that the work is over. As Dr. Ferrer just shared, we will continue our efforts countywide to ensure that those who are most vulnerable and most impacted by COVID are supported in new and meaningful ways. In the coming weeks, we look forward to deeper partnerships with local community-based organizations who have strong roots in at-risk local communities to be able to facilitate access to the testing and resources that they need to be healthy. This is in addition to our continued technical assistance that is available to the established healthcare providers across Los Angeles County who are doing their own work in partnership with health plans to expand testing for their members and their patients. Finally, I'll shift briefly to touch on schools and the distance learning environment. LA County is reporting, as we know, that COVID-19 cases among children and young adults have crept up slightly, though the range in severity of cases varies widely from mild to severe. This should serve as a reminder to everybody that COVID can infect anyone. No one is, immune, is, is not susceptible to this virus, no matter what your age and regardless of whether or not you have underlying health conditions. The same precautions for adults, wearing masks, social and physical distancing, washing your hands are just as critical for our children and young adults as they are for ourselves. I know this topic is top of mind for many families and children, especially as we are in back to school season, and this brings this year a new distance learning reality and challenges that go with it. This week, hundreds of thousands of children and teenagers started the new school year with the first day of instruction for LAUSD this week, as well as for other school districts. While we continue to battle to slow the spread of COVID in the community, however, we all know that school is starting in this virtual framework this year. My hope, and I know the hope of many parents, as well as I know the hope of Dr. Ferrer and the public health community broadly, is that we will be able to return to in-classroom learning as soon as possible. In-person learning is critical for the educational advancement of our children, as well as for their overall health and well-being. As a parent of school-aged children myself, I know that the return to school in a distance learning format is not ideal. It is difficult and the education is simply not the same. 
but at least for this current time, it is necessary to protect the health and safety of our children and the teachers that teach them. Parents and students, these next few days, and possibly weeks and months, may be tough as you start to transition into this new school year online. I'm sure there will be frustrations with the transition and know that there might be many feelings of anxiety or stress or depression, and this is normal. Please know that there is help out there if you need it. The signs of depression and anxiety can be different in different kids. It might manifest as being withdrawn or tearful or as acting out or as disobedience. It can take many shapes and forms, but please do reach out if you need support. Call your pediatrician, call your healthcare provider if you're concerned about your child. Our partners also at the LA County Department of Mental Health have resources that are available to you. They have a 24-7 helpline that you can access confidentially if you need assistance. There's no charge for use of this line. The number is 1-800-854-7771. That's 1-800-854-7771. They also have a wealth of resources that are located online, and you can access those through the DMH website. The address for that is dmh.lacounty.gov slash resources. There's a number of topics there related to both general mental health as well as the back-to-school environment this year. I know that we are all ready for COVID to be behind us, and that time certainly someday will come, but it's not here yet. But know that we are making progress, and we're making progress thanks to you and what you do every day. Thanks for doing your part and for doing everything that we all collectively can to be able to, at some point soon, start a new chapter together. And we'll now take questions. Ladies and gentlemen, if you wish to ask a question, please press 1 to 0 on your telephone keypad. You may withdraw your question at any time by repeating the 1 0 command. If you're using a speakerphone, please pick up the handset before you press the numbers. Our first question will come from the line of Claudia Bistra with KNX News Radio. Please go ahead. Hi, I have a couple of quick questions. Um, I'm wondering uh, if you're going to be providing an update on the cases and deaths among healthcare workers and first responders, and also if you have the number of homeless people who've died. Um, also, if you have an updated number on the seven-day test positivity rate, uh, I don't see an update on the website since August 11th. And then also, um, if there's anything new on the backlog and the issue and the the efforts to try to get the labs to report directly to the county. Um, yeah, thank you. Thanks, Claudia. Um, so tomorrow, I believe Dr. Gunsenhauser will be providing updates on um, healthcare workers. Um, and I think he's also got some updates around people experiencing homelessness. Um, but we can certainly uh, provide you with that information if uh, all of that doesn't get covered tomorrow in, uh, in his pr press briefing at 1 o'clock. Um, in terms of the case positivity rate, um, I'm not sure um, why it didn't show up on our website today. You know, we were working on this backlog issue, uh, but the positivity rate that ro I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about the rolling rate for labs for test the results. Seven, the seven, seven day. day. Yeah. I'm not sure why that's not showing up. So thanks for letting me know. I know that we held it. It was frozen for a while. Um, as was the state's, um, but it, it should be back up as of the beginning of this week. So, so I'll check and 
Um, we'll either post it, because as far as I, I, I'm getting the results now, so I, I don't know why they're not posted. Um, but if there's some problem with the data, we'll post something on the website uh, to explain that. And then in terms of the backlog, we've received about uh, 2,400 positive test results um, that started, uh, you know, went, went back as far as uh, sort of the, the last week in July, um, all the way through about, uh, I think it's nine days ago. Um, we, so we did get about 2,400 cases that were positive. I think it's about 44,000 uh, total lab results. Uh, we think that uh, we're still missing um, uh, a couple of thousand uh, backlog cases, and we're working really hard with the state um, to make sure that we actually are able to capture those. These are all cases that do go back now uh, more than three weeks, but um, we, are, we always do uh, an update on our, uh, on our rolling averages to sort of reflect what now is uh, more accurate counts for all of those days starting I think on July 23rd is, I think, is, I think that's the earliest date we've discovered a problem. Um, but uh, but we, we hope by the end of this week for sure that, you know, we've got all the backlog cases in. Uh, I do want to note that it, you can go now to the state's county monitoring site um, and also see on their table uh, now what our rates are because they had frozen their site as well but the data is, is on there now uh, for people to be able to look at across all of the counties in the state. Uh, we'll take the next question. There, question is from Bernard Wilson from Kaiser Health News. Please go ahead. Uh, yes, good afternoon. Um, this is slightly off the topic. I'm, uh, I want to ask about the wildfires, mostly okay. in Northern California, but some in Southern California. Uh, and I would like to know uh, what masks, what type of face masks you would recommend for optim optimal protection from smoke and the fine particulates that are in the air, uh, sometimes hundreds of miles away from the fires, uh, and whether any of the sort of more regular cloth masks or masks you can buy in stores now that are used by people against uh, COVID-19 offer any protection against the smoke and the particulates from the fires. Uh, and finally, if not, where can people get the kinds of masks that they yeah. that are required? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't want to misspeak. Uh, obviously, uh, we have uh, in the past um, for fires that have been local here uh, recommended uh, for some people who have health conditions that masking can be an important part of a prevention uh, effort. Uh, some of those, uh, depending on the conditions, uh, have been surgical masks. Many of them have not been surgical masks. They've just been the equivalent of uh, what you're getting with a cloth face covering. I do want to note that you can find specific guidance on our website about uh, particularly about cleaning up after a fire uh, because that's when um, it's also very important for people to take uh, prevention efforts because they may be coming in contact with, as you noted, uh, harmful materials that are left behind from the fire. But I would just recommend that for more detailed information on both masking and how to take care of yourself, the people you love, both during uh, fire uh, when uh, you're, uh, you haven't been evacuated, but you're obviously, as you noted, uh, feeling the effects of uh, a lot of heavy smoke um, and polluted air, and also, uh, just as importantly, how to prepare for cleaning up after a fire uh, may have ravaged your community. 
Uh, we'll take the next question. Next question is Christopher Weber, the Associated Press. Please go ahead. Yes, hello. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, Governor Newsom uh, said that he's speaking with local officials about guidance for businesses to reopen in counties that come off the state watch list. I wonder wh what changes, if any, do you think are needed to, to the guidance that we had previously when we reopened in June before shutting down again? And do you have any sense about how close L.A. County is to, to falling off the watch list? Yeah, it's a, it is a great question. Um, and, you know, now that the state has reopened the monitoring list, I can tell you exactly where we are in L.A. County. There are six metrics on that monitoring list. Uh, in the past, uh, L.A. County was on the monitoring list because we failed to meet two of those metrics. One was the, uh, our, pos our test positivity rate. It needed to be below 8 <clears> percent, <throat> sorry, for um, 14 consecutive days. Um, and the other was our case rate, which to get off of the monitoring list needs to be at or below 100 cases per 100,000 people. Uh, I'm, I'm really pleased, like, and thanks to everybody for all of their efforts. This only happened because a lot of people made a lot of effort. Uh, where we now have had our, our test positivity rate at below 8% for 14 consecutive days. Um, and so we are no longer um, on the monitoring list because of our testing positivity rate. It's, it's averaging about 6%. Um, and, uh, but we do still stay on the monitoring list because our case rate is still way too high. Uh, the case rate, although, has significantly come down. Uh, when I spoke about the case rate about 10 days ago, we were at about 335 cases per 100,000 people. When the state posted the updated numbers yesterday, they posted for L.A. County 245 cases per 100,000 people. So again, uh, in just the space of 10 days, uh, that's quite uh, decent progress for us to be making. But until our rate gets at or below 100 cases, and we do have a ways to go, uh, we will stay on the state's uh, monitoring list for counties. And that does restrict what we would be allowed to reopen. Um, I do think everybody, not just L.A. County, uh, has learned a lot um, from the beginning of the pandemic, certainly from reopening uh, many sectors in June and continuing with some of our recovery activities in July and now in August, um, that we need to be very mindful of uh, what our data is telling us. Um, and certainly uh, we had a, a pretty devastating month of July with very, very high rates of, of people being in the hospital. Uh, people uh, actually uh, increased our rate of deaths and also uh, saw skyrocketing numbers in terms of our case rates. Uh, so we're doing better but we're not doing well enough. We still have a lot of community transmission, and uh, not only won't we be getting off of our, uh, uh, the county's monitoring list, uh, but we're going to be needing to work with businesses to make sure that over the next few weeks we continue to do everything we're doing right now um, so that we make progress. It's because of all the work that people are doing to adhere to the protocols, wear their face coverings, avoid those gatherings, that our rate is dropping. Uh, we needed to drop to at or below 200 cases per 100,000 people as a reminder to be able to open up a waiver program uh, for schools that want to reopen in, in classroom instruction for students between uh, the grades of TK through grade six. And that's our number one priority right now. Get our rates down so that we can in fact start running that waiver program, which we'll be allowed to do. But we'll take the next question. Next question from Colleen Shelby, LA Times. Please go ahead. 
Oh, thanks for taking my question. Um, I'm wondering, since the virus is a respiratory infection, if there's any concern that heat or smoke could exacerbate symptoms for individuals who currently have the virus, and if you have any recommendations for those who do how to better protect themselves. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, both heat and fire um, can make it much harder for people who are ill with a whole host of conditions. But you noted for respiratory conditions, uh, it can make it much harder for them to actually breathe. So uh, our, our best advice to everyone is um, if you are living in an area where the air quality is poor uh, because of the fires or because of the excessive heat uh, and you're feeling uh, either worse or you're having trouble, at all, any trouble, uh, breathing, you need to contact your health care provider. And if you don't have a health care provider, uh, you please contact 211. If it's an urgent matter uh, and you're really struggling to breathe, uh, then you need to call 911. Um, this would not be a time. We have had extraordinarily high heat, um, and this would not be a time for people who already are sick, either with COVID-19 or any other health condition, uh, to play around with uh, their own health when, in fact, they're feeling like they're struggling to breathe. So I would urge people uh, to work with your providers. You know, we do put out every day a health alert. Uh, during excessive heat days and uh, in terms of bad air quality days. It uh, has a lot of advice uh, for people who have underlying health conditions. Uh, it also talks about vulnerable people, including infants and elderly people, who really need to stay out of uh, being out, stay inside as much as possible. Uh, we're going to encourage people during this excessive heat wave uh, to please use our cooling centers uh, if you can't stay cool in your own house. Uh, all of our cooling centers are adhering to the strictest protocols uh, for safety during a pandemic. Uh, but again, uh, people need to, to keep themselves relatively cool, not to overheat. And if you're in a vulnerable group uh, and you start feeling uh, particularly ill, you need to call a health care provider. We'll take one more question. Next question is from Jonathan Gonzalez, KNBC4. Please go ahead. Hey there. Um, you guys talked a lot, a lot about how low-income communities, communities of color, they're disproportionately affected by the virus with regards to case rate and death rate, though you did say that the gap uh, is closing. That's some good news. But what do you guys believe is the biggest key or some of the biggest keys to continue closing that gap? You know, it's, it's a, such a good question. I mean, I will say um, that uh, making sure workers are protected uh, is at the top of the list. Um, while we're doing a much better job, and I want to thank businesses, and I want to thank employees and our labor union partners, we're doing a much better job figuring out what, in fact, needs to happen at work sites so that there can be as much safety as possible. Uh, people have to go to work. It's an essential activity. Uh, and when they go to work, they need to have every single protection uh, that we know helps keep them as safe as possible. Um, the second um, area where, you know, you, you know uh, we've been spending some time, I want to thank Dr. Galley and her team, is it's absolutely essential uh, that people have really good, easy access to testing uh, when they need to be tested. Uh, it's really hard to take uh, proactive actions if people who may be ill with COVID-19 aren't able to get in, get tested, get those test results quickly um, so that then we can help them uh, figure out how to safely isolate, identify their close contacts, and have their close contacts quarantined. I mean, that's a containment strategy. It really depends on knowing who is infected and making sure that people who are infected are not circulating uh, in the general public where they can easily 
infect others. Um, and, and so, you know, part of the strategy has been particularly around ramping up testing, but we're also working hard to make sure that people are connected to healthcare providers and that healthcare providers, particularly those that are working in the communities that are the hardest hit, have the resources they need to be able to take care of their patients uh, or people who live in their communities. And that means we're working hard at making sure that there's easy access to PPE and to uh, connecting with us around uh, what to do when patients have tested positive so that we can help with resources for quarantining and isolating effectively. And I think the last uh, area where, um, you know, I, I think you've seen the county make a, a lot of investments, and, and this is the county family, the city families, is um, people need resources uh, in order to weather uh, a pandemic. Uh, they need to have a safety net. It makes it a lot easier to think about quarantining and isolating if you don't feel like you're going to be out of your job and if you don't feel like you're not going to have any money, you can't pay your rent, and you're not going to have any food for your family or the people you live with and love. Um, so I want to really thank uh, everybody who's working so hard to make sure that that social support network uh, is, is as strong as possible, provides as much safety as possible, uh, so that, again, people can, uh, in fact, uh, be able to safely quarantine and isolate. Uh, and we're working hard uh, to make that possible. And probably the last thing is, you know, everyone doing their part. I, I can't say enough about that. I think Dr. Galley spoke eloquently about uh, this is the time for everybody to be part of the solution. Uh, you actually have a, an amazing opportunity here to save people's lives uh, by, by doing what's right. And, and the things that, um, that people can do to save people's lives at this point uh, should be routine. Wearing that face covering when you're around others, you know, obviously distancing and staying away from crowds. Please don't host or go to parties. Uh, and then, you know, good hand hygiene. Uh, these have been proven over and over again in our country and in other countries uh, to actually help slow the spread of community transmission. So if there's, a, if there's a silver lining to this, it's that every single person who lives in L.A. County gets to do something to help us get to the other side of the pandemic. Uh, and when, with that, we'll turn to remarks in Spanish by, by Jackie Valenzuela. Buenas tardes. Hoy nos gustaría actualizarlos sobre los datos que hemos estado analizando durante la pandemia. Estas son tasas desproporcionadas de casos, hospitalizaciones y fallecimientos uh, entre comunidades diversas y entre personas que viven en comunidades de escasos recursos. Queremos comenzar hoy observando lo que nos dicen los números uh, sobre el impacto de COVID-19 en estas comunidades. First slide, please. Este gráfico muestra el total de casos, hospitalizaciones y tasas de mortalidad por raza y etnicidad. Los números representan tasas acumulativas desde el inicio de la pandemia hasta el 17 de agosto. Vemos tasas muy altas en todas las áreas, especialmente para los residentes latinos, nativos de Hawái, de las Islas del Pacífico, afroamericanos e indígenas estadounidenses y nativos de Alaska. Por ejemplo, aunque los números son relativamente pequeños entre los residentes nativos de Hawái o de las Islas del Pacífico, ellos tienen una tasa de casos de más de 3,000 casos por cada 100,000 habitantes. Esto es seis veces más comparado con la tasa de casos de residentes blancos. 
los latinos han experimentado más de 350 hospitalizaciones por cada 100,000 personas, mientras que los residentes blancos y asiáticos tienen tasas de hospitalizaciones acumulativas de alrededor de 100 hospitalizaciones por cada 100,000 habitantes. Los residentes afroamericanos tienen una tasa de mortalidad acumulativa de 56 por cada 100,000 personas. Y esto es más del doble de los residentes blancos. Next slide. Si bien es muy importante comprender el impacto de estos datos de lo lar a lo largo del tiempo, también debemos observar las tasas actuales para marcar el impacto de los esfuerzos para reducir las brechas. Este gráfico describe el caso actual de las tasas de hospitalizaciones y fallecimientos por raza y etnicidad. Debido a que esto representa datos actuales, nuestros números son mucho más pequeños y solo podemos mostrar tasas confiables para las categorías más grandes de raza y etnicidad, latinos, afroamericanos, blancos y asiáticos. Aunque todavía existe una gran desproporción, perdón, estamos notando una disminución significativa en la tasa de mortalidad entre los residentes afroamericanos. Ahora vemos que tienen la segunda tasa de mortalidad más baja entre estos cuatro grupos y solo los residentes asiáticos tienen una tasa de fallecimientos más baja. Next slide. Podemos analizar nuestros datos a lo largo del tiempo para comprender mejor cuándo las brechas son más severas y cuándo vemos señales de mejoramiento. Este gráfico muestra la tasa de casos por cada 100,000 personas en el condado de Los Ángeles por raza y etnicidad desde el 1 de mayo hasta el 9 de agosto. Durante el pico en el número de casos en julio, todos los grupos vieron aumentos en las tasas de casos. Sin embargo, la línea María representa la tasa de casos entre los residentes latinos y demuestra que este grupo tuvo un aumento mucho más alto comparado con otros grupos. El 21 de julio, la tasa de casos entre los latinos aumentó a 194 casos uh, por cada 100,000 personas, aproximadamente cuatro veces la tasa de casos entre los blancos, quienes tenían una tasa de 48 por cada 100,000 personas. Para los residentes afroamericanos, la tasa fue de 78 por cada 100,000 habitantes. Y un factor que contribuye a esta desigualdad probablemente se deba a las exposiciones en el lugar de trabajo experimentadas por los residentes latinos, quienes tienen más probabilidades de trabajar en industrias esenciales y en trabajos de bajos salarios donde hubieron pocas protecciones en el lugar de trabajo. Al, al comienzo de la pandemia, no sabíamos lo suficiente sobre la propagación uh, asintomática para garantizar que los trabajadores esenciales que no se encontraban en centros de atención médica estuvieran protegidos contra la virus. Sin embargo, desde, la, desde abril hemos realizado cambios que incluyen exigir a todos los lugares de trabajo que instituyan un control constante de infecciones y medidas de distanciamiento que crean más seguridad para los empleados igual que para los clientes. En unos minutos hablaremos de cómo estamos abordando esta iniquidad a través de asistencia técnica para empleadores y visitas proactivas para medir el cumplimiento. 
afortunadamente la tasa de casos está disminuyendo para todos, a todos los grupos y las brechas se están cerrando. Para el 9 de agosto, los datos más recientes en este gráfico, la tasa de casos para los residentes latinos fue de 91 por cada 100,000 personas, tres veces la tasa de los residentes blancos que experimentan 28 casos por cada 100,000 personas. Para los afroamericanos, esta tasa se ha reducido a 38 casos por cada 100,000 personas. Next slide, please. Al igual que el gráfico anterior, cual indica la desproporcionalidad entre las tasas de casos por raza y etnicidad, este gráfico muestra las tasas de muerte por raza y etnicidad y demuestra el impacto devastador continuo entre las personas afroamericanas. Nuevamente, los residentes latinos están falleciendo y mantienen tasas mucho más altas que otros grupos, con seis fallecimientos por cada 100,000 personas. La tasa de mortalidad de los residentes afroamericanos fue de cuatro muertes por cada 100,000 personas, tres veces más alta que la tasa de los residentes blancos de 1.3 muertes por cada 100,000 personas. Afortunadamente, las tasas de mortalidad están disminuyendo en todos los grupos y estamos cerrando brechas. La tasa de mortalidad actual para los residentes afroamericanos es de 1.7 muertes por cada 100,000 personas, solo un poco más alta que la de los residentes blanca, blancos, cuya tasa de mortalidad es de una muerte por cien, cada 100,000 personas. La tasa de mortalidad entre los residentes latinos se ha reducido a 2.4 muertes por cada 100,000 personas. Next slide. La tasa acumulativa de casos y mortalidad por niveles de ingresos muestra un panorama similar. A medida que aumenta el nivel de ingresos, disminuyen las tasas de casos y mortalidad. Las personas que viven en las áreas con menos recursos del condado tienen una tasa de casos que es más del doble que de las personas que viven en áreas con el nivel más bajo de pobreza. Las personas en las áreas de mayor pobreza tienen una tasa de mortalidad que es cuatro veces mayor que la de las personas en las áreas con ingresos más altos. Next slide. También estamos observando con atención las tasas de desproporcionalidad según los niveles de pobreza del vecindario. Como podemos ver en este gráfico, todos los residentes en el condado de Los Ángeles, desde las áreas de mayores ingresos hasta las áreas de menores recursos, experimentaron eh, un aumento en casos en julio. Pero este gráfico muestra que las personas en las áreas con menos recursos, representadas por la línea anaranjada, vieron las tasas más altas de casos durante toda la pandemia. De hecho, las tasas de casos corresponden directamente con el nivel de ingresos de la vecindad, con la línea azul, cual representa a las personas que viven en las áreas con más altos ingresos. En su punto más alto, el 15 de julio, la tasa de casos entre las personas que viven en zonas con menos recursos fue de 341 casos por cada 100,000 habitantes. Esto es más del doble de la tasa de personas que viven en las áreas de ingresos más altos, 145 casos por cada 100,000 habitantes. Desafortunadamente, esta brecha no parece cerrarse. 
El 9 de agosto, la tasa de casos para las comunidades con menos recursos fue de 181 por cada 100,000 habitantes. Y la tasa de casos para los vecindarios con los niveles de ingresos más altos fue menos de la mitad, 70 casos por cada 100,000 personas. Next slide, please. Sin embargo, la brecha entre las personas que viven en comunidades de recursos más bajos y altos parece estar cerrándose. En su punto máximo, el 10 de junio, la tasa de mortalidad de las personas que viven en las comunidades con menos recursos fue de 7 por cada 100,000 personas, siete veces más alta que de las personas que vivían en zonas con más recursos, que tenían una tasa de mortalidad de una por cada 100,000 habitantes. El 9 de agosto, la tasa de mortalidad entre las personas que viven en áreas con menos recursos fue de 4.6, cuatro veces la de las comunidades con mayores recursos que, te, que continúan teniendo una tasa de mortalidad de una persona por cada 100,000 personas. Next slide, please. Si bien tenemos un largo camino por recorrer para eliminar las brechas en los resultados de salud relacionados con COVID-19, hemos comenzado a hacer algunos avances. Esto puede reflejar en parte la asignación de recursos adicionales a las comunidades más afectadas por la pandemia. Por ejemplo, estamos viendo que las personas que viven en áreas de bajos recursos tienen tasas bastante altas de pruebas de COVID-19 y las que viven en las áreas con menos recursos tienen la tasa más alta de pruebas con casi 20,000 pruebas por uh, cada 100,000 personas. Tenemos que agradecer el increíble trabajo de la doctora Gally y su talentoso equipo y nuestros socios de la ciudad y la comunidad por mejorar el acceso a las pruebas en las comunidades que más necesitaban estos recursos. Apreciamos profundamente todos los esfuerzos para garantizar un mejor acceso a las pruebas esenciales. Otra estrategia que estamos utilizando para tratar de reducir la desigualdad es mejorar los esfuerzos para proteger la salud de los trabajadores, haciendo que los lugares de trabajo sean lo más seguros posibles. Next slide. Continuamos investigando negocios por incumplimiento de la orden del oficial de salud. Al darse cuenta de que la transmisión en los lugares de trabajo está alimentando la, las desigualdades, nuestros inspectores han triplicado el número de investigaciones mensuales de 2,877 investigaciones en marzo a 9,683 investigaciones en julio. Hasta la fecha se han realizado investigaciones en casi 30,000 lugares de empleo. Next slide. Este gráfico muestra este aumento en las investigaciones de nuestro equipo de salud ambiental. Estos números representan tanto las quejas como nuestras inspecciones normales. Next slide. Y a medida que nuestros esfuerzos de cumplimiento se han incrementado, tenemos la esperanza de que menos lugares de trabajo se nieguen a cumplir con las directivas de la orden. Este gráfico muestra que el número de cierres de negocios por violaciones a la orden del oficial de salud está disminuyendo de 30 negocios cerrados por violaciones a la orden uh, en abril a 23 negocios cerrados en julio. Y esto sucedió a pesar de que se realizaron muchas más inspecciones en julio que en abril. 
tenemos la intención de mantener a nuestros inspectores respondiendo um, a las quejas y a las investigaciones de rutina en sitios comerciales que presentan mayores riesgos para los empleados. También estamos trabajando con la Junta de Supervisores y nuestros socios comunitarios para establecer concilios de salud para trabajadores que puedan ayudar en todos los esfuerzos para proteger a los, a los trabajadores y brindar apoyo a aquellos que están infectados o expuestos a COVID-19. Animamos a los negocios que se comuniquen con nosotros si tienen preguntas sobre el cumplimiento de la orden del funcionario, funcionario de salud las empresas desempeñan un papel muy importante en frenar la propagación de COVID-19. Sus acciones y políticas tienen un impacto enorme en sus trabajadores y en sus familias. Y queremos agradecer a todos los empleadores que hacen el trabajo para cumplir con la orden. También queremos asegurarnos de que todos los trabajadores eh, sepan que puedan llamarnos si están preocupados por las condiciones laborales en su trabajo. Las quejas se pueden enviar de forma anónima al, eh, al llamar eh, 888-700-995 de eh, 8 de la mañana a 5 de la tarde de lunes a viernes. Los clientes también pueden informar cualquier queja. Si de un negocio que no está en cumplimiento, incluso si no es un negocio regulado por el Departamento de Salud Pública, como lugares de trabajo y centros comerciales uh, en oficinas, puede enviarnos una queja y nuestro equipo trabajará con nuestros socios de otras agencias para responder. Al trabajar juntos, podemos continuar implementando soluciones y tomar acciones que reduzcan el impacto devastador de esta pandemia al asegurar que los recursos se dirijan a las comunidades más afectadas. Nuestra actualización de hoy es de 61 fallecimientos más. Esto eleva el número total de fallecimientos a 5,392 en el condado de Los Ángeles. El 92% de las personas que fallecieron por COVID-19 tenían problemas delicados de salud. De las 5,072 personas que han fallecido en las que se identificó la raza etnicidad, el 50% son latinos, el 24% son blancos, el 15% son asiáticos, el 10% son afroamericanos, Menos de un por ciento son nativos de Hawái o de las islas del Pacífico y un por ciento son de otra raza etnicidad. Hoy estamos reportando 1,956 casos nuevos. Esto incluye, incluye alrededor de 100 casos del retraso del estado. Esto eleva el número total de casos en el condado de Los Ángeles a 225,827. Estamos reportando 1,380 casos confirmados entre personas sin hogar. Entre estos casos, 413 fueron remitidos a sitios de aislamiento y cuarentena. Y actualmente se encuentran hospitalizados 1,378 casos confirmados. 32% de estas personas son casos confirmados en unidades de cuidados intensivos. Y actualmente hay 1,896 casos confirmados y no confirmados um, hospitalizados y el 19% están en ventiladores. Hemos investigado un total de 1,494 uh, entornos residenciales y no residenciales con al menos un caso confirmado de COVID-19. 
El total de casos confirmados en entornos institucionales es de 30,440, incluidos tanto el personal como los residentes. Y nos da tristeza informar 2,451 uh, casos en eh, perdón, personas en entornos institucionales han fallecido a causa de COVID-19. 2,218 personas residían en centros de enfermería especializada. Estamos reportando 3,517 casos confirmados en algún momento en las cárceles, 3,125 entre personas que están encarceladas y 392 empleados. La oficina del Aguacil reporta para sus instalaciones que 20 personas encarceladas han dado positivo, 48 personas están aisladas y 1,030 están en cuarentena. Hay 206 casos en la prisión estatal, 758 casos en las prisiones federales y 137 casos en las instalaciones juveniles. Más de 2.1 millones de personas se han hecho pruebas de COVID-19 y se han informado los resultados al condado de Los Ángeles. El 10% de estas pruebas dieron positivo. El Departamento de Salud Pública y sus socios están trabajando arduamente para abordar el impacto de COVID-19 en nuestras comunidades mediante el aumento de las pruebas y la garantía de que los lugares de trabajo sean seguros para todos, tanto empleados como clientes. Pero abordar los factores que resultan en la distribución desigual de los recursos eh, necesarios para una salud óptima requiere esfuerzos más amplios que se centran en la justicia racial y económica. Todos podemos trabajar juntos para asignar recursos y fortalecer los sistemas que cambian las condiciones que contribuyen a resultados desiguales durante la pandemia y mucho después de la pandemia. Para terminar, gracias a todos los que trabajan incansablemente para luchar contra el odio y el racismo, para construir un condado, un país y un mundo más justos. Gracias. And now we'll move on to remarks in Armenian by Nona Oganisian. Բարեոր բոլորին։ Այսօր ես կցանկան այդ հարմացնել տվյալներ, որոնց մենք հետևում ենք ողջ համաճարակի ընթացքում։ Դեպքերի անհամաչափ տեմպերը, հոսպիտալացումները եւ մահվան դեպքերի գունավոր եւ անապահով համայնքների բնակչության շրջանում։ Ներկա իրավիճակի վերաբերյալ տեղեկությունները հետևյալն են։ Այսօր ցավով հայտնում ենք եւս 61 մահվան մասին։ Այս մարդկանցից 26-ը 80 տարեկանից բարձր էին եւ որոնցից 17-ը ունեին ուղեկցող առողջական խնդիրներ։ 20-ը 65 տարեկանից 79-ն էին եւ 14-ը ունեցել են ուղեկցող առողջական խնդիրներ։ 6 անձի տարիքը 30-ից 6 անձի տարիքը 50-ից 64-ն է եւ 4-ը ունեցել են ուղեկցող առողջական խնդիրներ։ 1 անձը 18 տարեկանից 29-ն է եւ չի ունեցել ուղեկցող առողջական խնդիրներ։ Սա բերում է ընդհանուր մահերի թիվը 5392-ի Լոս Անջելոս շրջանում։ Էթնիկ պատկանելությունը հետևյալն է։ 50%-ը լատինեկ, 24%-ը սպիտակ, 15%-ը ասիական, 
Այս դեպքերը ներարում են լոնգվիչ կաղաքում մեր գործ ընկերների կողմից հաղորդված 9795 դեպքեր, իսկ պասետենա կաղաքի կողմից գրանցված 2248 դեպքեր, որոնք ունեն անկաղ առողջապահական բաժանուկներ։ Մենք հայտնում ենք 1380 հաստատված դեպք անոթևան ապրող մարդկան չրջանում։ Ապաստան գտաց 413 անց պատշաչ կերպով մեկուսացված են, իսկ սերտ կապերը կարանդինացված են։ Ներկայումս հոսպիտալացվել են 1378 մարդ, որոնցից 32 շնչարական ոտապողիչների։ Ներկայումս կնություներ են կատարվում 1494 ինստիտությոնալ բնակչության հաստատություններում։ Դրանց թվում են ծերանոցներ, ապաստաններ, բուժման կենտրոններ, ոժանդակվող բնակելի հաստատություններ և Հավովենքայտնում, զեկուցում ենք, որ հաստատված 3517 դեպքեր արձանագրվել են գրյակ ատարողական հիմնարկներում, 3125 դատապարծալ և 392 աշխատակազ։ Շերիվի գրասինյակը հայտնում է իրենց հաստատությունների մասին 20 դատապարծալներ, ովքեր դրական 206 դեպք նհանգային բանտերում, 146 բանտարկյան և 60 աշխատակազմ, 758 դեպք վեդերալ բանտերում, 742 բանտարկյալ և 16 աշխատակազմ, 137 դեպք անչապահասների հաստատություններում, 58 բանտարկյալ և 79 աշխատակազմ, և լոս բոլոր նոր դեպքերի զեկույցը կարող եք տեսնել առողջապայության վարջության կայքում publichealth.lacani.gov։ Ավելի կան 2.121.211 մարդ տեստավորվել են և արդյունքները զեկուցվել են լոս անջելոս շրջան, որոնցից տաս տոքոսը դրական են։
Հանրային առողջապահությունը եւ նրա գործընկերները քրտնաջան աշխատում են լուծելու համար, թե ինչպես է COVID-19-ը ազդում մեր համայնքների վրա։ Փորձարկումների քանակի աճով եւ անվտանգ աշխատատեղեր ապահովելով աշխատողների եւ հաճախորդների համար։ Բայց այն գործոնների լուծումը, որոնք հագեցնում են անհրաժեշտ ռեսուրսների անհավասար բաշխմանը, օպտիմալ առողջության համար պահանջում են ավելի ընդարձակ ջանքեր, որոնք ուղված են ռասայական եւ տնտեսական արդարությանը։ Բոլորս կարող ենք միասին աշխատել ռեսուրսներ տրամադրելու եւ համակարգերը ուժեղացնելու համար, որոնք փոխում են համաճարակի ընթացքում անհավասար արդյունքների նպաստող պայմանները։ Միլոնավոր շնորհակալություն յուրաքանչյուրին, ով պայքարում է ատելության եւ ռասիզմի դեմ կառուցելու ավելի արդար երկիր եւ աշխար։ Մենք ձեզ հետ ենք միանում եւ ամենակ այս ամենակարևոր աշխատանքում։ Շնորհակալություն։ Thank you. Now the remarks in Korean. Anyashimnika. 오늘은 자원이 불충분한 커뮤니티에 살고 있는 유색 인종의 커뮤니티에서의 케이스 수와 병원 입원자 수 그리고 사망자 수에 대한 업데이트를 알리고자 합니다. 팬데믹 시작부터 8월 17일까지의 인종 간총 케이스 수, 병원 입원자 수, 사망률의 데이터를 살펴보면 라틴 계열과 하와이 태평양성 원주민, 흑인, 그리고 인디안 알래스카 원주민들 사이에 매우 높은 수치를 볼수 있습니다. 예를 들어 하와이 태평양성 원주민들은 주민 수는 비교적 적지만 10만 명당 3천 케이스의 수치이고 이것은 백인 주민들보다 6배 높은 수였습니다. 라틴 계열은 10만 명당 350명이 병원에 입원하였으며 백인과 동양인은 10만 명당 100명 정도가 병원에 입원하였습니다. 흑인 주민들은 10만 명당 56명이 사망하였고 이것은 백인 주민들보다 두배 이상 되는 수치입니다. 아직 큰 불균형이 있지만 흑인 주민들 가운데의 사망률이 줄어드는 것을 보고 있습니다. 이 그룹은 동양인 다음으로 두 번째로 적은 사망률을 가지고 있습니다. 5월 1일에서 8월 9일까지 LA 카운티에서 인종별 10만 명당 케이스류를 살펴보면 7월 21일에 라틴 계열 케이스류이 10만 명당 194건으로 갑자기 올랐었는데 이것은 백인의 10만 명당 48건보다 4배 높은 수치였습니다. 흑인 주민들은 10만 명당 78건이었습니다. 이 불평등 중의 원인 중의 하나는 라틴 계열의 주민들이 직장에서 노출되어 있을 확률이 높은데 이들이 필수 업종에서 일하고 있고 직장에서 보호가 많이 없는 저임금 직장에 다니고 있기 때문입니다. 팬데믹 초기에 의료기관이 아닌 곳에서 일하는 필수 노동자들이 무증상으로 인해 확산될 수 있다는 것을 몰랐었습니다. 그러나 4월 후로부터는 모든 직장에서 감염관리 조치와 거리 두기 마련을 함으로써 직원들과 손님이 모두 보호받기 위해서 노력하였습니다. 8월 9일에는 케이스 수가 라틴 계열은 10만 명당 91명, 백인은 10만 명당 28명, 흑인은 10만 명당 38명으로 줄어드는 것을 볼수 있었습니다. 또한 임금 수준이 올라가면 케이스와 사망률이 내려간다는 것을 볼수 있는데 저소득층에 사는 사람들이 그렇지 않은 사람들보다 확진 케이스 수가 두배더 높았습니다. 
또한 저소득층 지역에 사는 사람들이 고소득층 지역에 사는 사람들보다 사망률이 4배 이상 높았습니다. 불평등을 또한 줄이기 위해 할수 있는 한 가지 방법은 직장을 가능하면 안전하게 만들므로써 일하는 사람들과 일하는 사람들의 건강을 보호하는 방법입니다. 우리는 보건 담당자의 명령에 따르지 않는 사업체를 조사하고 있습니다. 직장에서의 확산이 불평등에 영향을 미친다는 것을 알게 됨으로써 감시관들은 3월에 2,877건을 조사한 것에 비해 7월에는 9,683건으로 3배 이상을 조사하였습니다. 지금까지 거의 3만 개의 사업체를 조사하였습니다. 보건 담당자의 명령에 따르지 않아서 영업을 중지한 사업체들은 4월에는 30개에서 7월에는 23개로 줄어들었는데 7월에 더 많은 사업체를 조사하였음에도 불구하고 그러하였습니다. 감시관들은 계속해서 신고 접수된 곳들을 조사하고 직원들에게 위험한 사업체들을 정기적으로 조사할 것입니다. 사업체들은 보건 담당자의 명령에 따르는 것과 관련하여 질문이 있다면 보건국에 문의할 수 있습니다. 사업체들은 확산을 늦추는 데 매우 중요한 역할을 하고 있습니다. 명령 안에 따르기 위해서 노력하는 모든 고용주분들에게 감사드립니다. 또한 모든 직원들은 자신의 직장에 일하는 상황에 대해서 우려되는 부분이 있다면 보건국에 전화할 수 있습니다. 신고는 월요일에서 금요일까지 아침 8시에서 저녁 5시까지 익명으로 할수 있는데 번호는 888-700-9995번입니다. 또한 손님들도 신고할 수 있는데 사업자가 명령에 따르지 않는 것을 본다면 특히 쇼핑센터나 오피스에 있는 직장처럼 의료기관에서 규제하지 않는 곳이라 할지라도 보건국에 신고를 하면 보건국 팀에서 파트너 에이전시들과 함께 이에 대처하기 위해서 노력할 것입니다. 우리는 이렇게 함께 일함으로써 우리가 리소스들을 가장 어려운 커뮤니티를 중점적으로 도와줄 수 있고 이들이 판단에게 영향을 받는 것을 줄이기 위해서 노력함으로써 함께 대책안을 마련할 수 있을 것입니다. 그럼 LA 카운티 보건당국이 발표하는 데일리 리포트를 말씀드리겠습니다. 유감스럽게도 코로나 바이러스로 인해 추가로 61명의 사망자가 보고되었습니다. 이중 26명은 80세 이상이고 이중 17명은 이미 질환을 가지고 있었습니다. 20명은 65세에서 79세 사이이고 이중 14명은 이미 질환을 가지고 있었습니다. 6명은 50세에서 64세 사이이고 이중 4명은 이미 질환을 가지고 있었습니다. 3명은 30세에서 49세 사이이고 이중 3명은 이미 질환을 가지고 있었습니다. 1명은 18세에서 29세 사이였습니다. 롱비치시에서는 5명의 사망자가 있었고 자세한 점은 웹사이트에서 보실 수 있습니다. 이로써 로세젤레스 카운티에서의 총 사망자 수는 5,392명입니다. 코로나 바이러스로 인해 사망한 분들 중에 92%가 이미 질환을 가지고 있었습니다. 인종과 민족성이 알려진 5,072명의 사망자 중에 50%는 라틴 계열, 24%는 백인, 15%는 동양인, 10%는 흑인, 1% 미만은 하와이 태평양 섬 원주민, 그리고 기타는 1%입니다. 오늘로서 1956건의 새로운 확진 케이스가 보고되었습니다. 이로써 로스앤젤레스 카운티에서의 총 확진 케이스 수는 22만 5,827건입니다. 
이순을 농위치시에서 9,795건, 파사디나시에서 2,248건이 있었고 이두 시는 각 보건구가 따로 있음을 알려드립니다. 노숙자들 가운데의 확진 케이스 수는 1,380건입니다. 이들 중 413명은 보호소에서 고립되어 있고 밀접 접촉자는 격리되었습니다. 현재 1,378명이 양성 확진자로 병원에 입원해 있으며 이중 32%는 중환자실에 있고 확진자와 의심자 1,896명 중에 19%는 인공호흡기에 의존해 있습니다. 하나 이상의 확진 케이스가 나온 총 1,494개의 거주시설과 비거주시설을 조사하였으며 이중 886개는 현재 조사 중이고 608개는 조사를 마쳤습니다. 이 시설들에는 양로원, 전문 간호시설, 보호소, 치료소, 서포트 리빙, 교도소, 직장, 음식점, 상점, 교육기관 등이 포함됩니다. 시설에서의 총 확진 케이스 수는 3만 440건이고 이중 1만 5,748명은 거주자였으며 1만 4,692명은 일하는 사람들이었습니다. 시설에 살고 있는 사람들 중에 사망자 수는 2,451명이고 이중 2,218명은 전문 간호시설에 살고 있었습니다. 오늘 발표된 56명의 사망자 중에 12명, 즉 21%는 전문 간호시설과 관련된 사망 케이스였습니다. 교도시설에는 총 3,517건의 확진 케이스가 있었고 이중 3,125명은 수감자이며 392명은 일하는 사람들입니다. 지금까지 LA 보건부로 210만 건 이상의 코로나 바이러스 테스트를 받은 것으로 보고되었고 이중 10%는 양성 결과였습니다. 오늘 발표한 데이트들에서 본 것과 같이 COVID-19는 조직적 인종차별과 불평등이 어떻게 건강에 영향을 미칠 수 있는지를 보여주었습니다. 이것은 새로운 것이 아니고 팬데믹이 끝난 후에도 아마 없어지지 않을 것입니다. 보건 당국과 파트너들은 직원과 손님 모두 안전하게 일할 수 있도록 일터를 마련하고 테스트를 더 많이 받을 수 있도록 함으로써 COVID-19가 우리가 우리의 커뮤니티에 영향을 미치는 것에 대응할 수 있도록 노력하고 있습니다. 우리 모두는 팜데믹 동안 또한 그 후에도 이러한 리소스들을 분배하고 또한 우리의 제도를 강화함으로써 불평등의 결과를 바꿀 수 있도록 노력해야 할 것입니다. 증오와 인종차별에 대항해서 싸우고 있는 모든 분들에게 감사드립니다. 더 공정한 카운티, 더 공정한 나라, 더 공정한 세계가 될수 있도록 앞장서서 노력하는 모든 분들에게 감사드립니다. 보건 당국도 이 중요한 일에 함께 하도록 할 것입니다. Thank you. Uh, next, um, Alan Cheng from Environmental Health will brief in Mandarin. Thank you. 各位校母好，今天我要和大家一起来看一看，自疫情开始，我们所经历的各方面的数据。感染率的失衡、住院及死亡率的失衡，尤其是在各有色人种和那些居住在贫困地区人们的状况。我会首先从数据上看看这些数
，我们看到了在整个期间，拉丁裔、夏威夷及太平洋群岛、太平洋群岛原住民、黑人以及印第安人高居不下的比率。譬如，夏威夷太平洋群岛原住民的比率为每十万人中有三千例，这一比例相对于对应的白人比例是六倍。拉丁裔的住院率为每十万人中350例，而对应的白人和亚裔则为每十万人中100例。我们再来看看死亡率，黑人的死亡率为每十万人56人，而这一数据超过了白人的一倍有余。尽管过去的资料十分说明问题，我们也要参考现行的比例来看看。如何降低这一差距？上一个列表出现在的各族裔的病例数、住院率、死亡率，现在的数据基数不是非常大，所以我们只能粗略的得出族裔基数较大的那些数据，即拉丁裔、黑人、白人和亚裔。尽管我们看到不平衡显示无疑。但我们可以看出，黑人的死亡率有显著的下降。这一死亡率在四大族裔中倒数第二，只比亚裔的死亡率略高。下一章，从历史资料看，我们可以分辨出什么时候这一差距最明显，什么时候改善的最明显。在七月份的爆发中，每一个族裔的病例都有明显的增加。图中。黄线显示，拉丁裔的增加最为明显。在七月二十一号，拉丁裔的每十万病例中，暴涨至一百九十四人，这是白人的四倍。白人的比例为每十万人四十八人，黑人的比例为每十万人中七十八人。我们有幸的是，所有族裔的病例比例都在下降。最近的资料。即八月九号选资料显示，拉丁裔的比例降至每十万人九十一人，但这一数据仍是白万白人的比例的三倍，即白人的比例是每十万人中二十八人。在下面一张数据里面显示，上述的病例比率类似，各族裔的死亡率也有巨大的差距，尤其以黑人。和有色人种为最，拉丁裔的死亡率为每十万人六人，这是其最高点。黑人的死亡率为每十万人四人，但这一比例仍是白人死亡率的三倍左右。这一数据是每十万人一点三人。感谢上帝，各族裔的死亡率都在下降，而且差距也在缩小。现在黑人的死亡率为每十万一点七人，比白人的死亡率稍高一点。白人的死亡率是每十万一人，拉丁裔的则为每十万人二点四人。以上述情况类似，由收入划分的不同群体间的累计比率也呈现类似的状况，即收入越高，死亡率越低。居住在贫困地区的人群的死亡率是居住在比较富庶地区的人群的一倍有余，这一数据大约是四倍。我们
回顾基本数据基本上就在这儿。来，我们现在再看一看我们现在的每日简报。很不幸，我们又有六十一个人今天又有六十人去世，其中二十六人为八十岁以上的长者，而这六十人二十六人中有十七人是患有其他疾病的。二十人为年年龄六十五岁到七十九岁之间，其中十四人患有其他疾病；六人的年龄介于五十岁到七十九岁之间，其中四人患有其他疾病；三人是年龄介于三十岁到四十九岁之间，而这三人都患有其他疾病；一人的年龄在十八岁到二十九岁之间，没有其他疾病。其中长滩市有五例死亡病例。有关资料可以在市网市属的网站里查找。这样，我们洛杉矶县的总共死亡人数就达到了五千三百九十二例。我在这里向那些非常处于悲伤的家庭中送去我的问候。因新冠病毒去世的逝者中有百分之九十的人患有其他疾病。在五千零七十二名已确定族裔背景的逝者中。有百分之五十的人属于拉丁裔，有百分之二十六的人属于白人，有百分之十五的人属于亚裔，有百分之十属于非裔，而不足百分之一的属夏威夷原住民和太平洋群岛原住民，还有百分之一的人属于其他族裔。今天的新天病例为一千九百五十六人，其中大约有一百例是由于州政府的延迟。导致，这样洛杉矶县的总病例增加到了二十二万五千八百二十七例，这包括长滩市的九千七百九十五人，帕萨迪纳市的两千两百四十八人，这两个城市都有自己的市立卫生部，其中一千三百八十八十例是来自于无家可归的人群，这一千三百八十例中有。四百一十三例已得到了妥善的隔离和防御。现有住院病人的一千三百七一千三百七十八例中，有百分之三十二的属于确诊病例，并住在加护病房。总共的一千八百九十六例中，包括确诊确诊病例和疑似病例，其中有百分之十九的人在使用呼吸机。我们再来给大家报告一下机构、大型居住场所和非居住场所的情况。我们总共调查了一千四百九十四所大型居住场所和非居住场所，这些场所有至少一例新冠病患者，其中八百八十六处场所正处在调查之中，六百零八处已完成调查。居住场所包括疗养院、辅助居住场所、庇护所。治治疗中心、加护中心及改造场所、非居住场所包括工作场所、食品或零售场所以及教育中心。各机关总的确诊人数为三万零四百四十四百四十例，其中一万五千七百四十八例为居住人员，一万四千六百九十二为工作人员。很不幸。有两千四百五十一名因新冠病去世的逝者中，来自于机构场所，其中两两千两百一十八例来自，这是来自于熟练护理中心。
，在今天去世的五十六人中，有十二人来自熟练护理场所，占总共去世人百分之十二。这一死亡数据让人不然。我在这里沉痛的向那些失去了居住在这些机构场所的亲人的家致以诚挚的问候。所有监禁场所总的确诊病例为三千五百一十七人，其中三千一百二十五人为囚犯，三千三百九十二人为员工。县警局的报告称，二十名囚犯为确诊病例，另外有四十八人得了隔离，有一千零三十人进行了防疫隔离。周监狱有两百零六例确诊病例，其中一百四十六例为囚犯，六十人为员工。联邦监狱有七百五十八例为确诊病例，其中七百四十二人为囚犯，十六人为员工。少年管教所有一百三十七例确诊病例，其中五十八人为受管教人员，七十九人为管教人员。有超过两百一十万的洛杉矶居民已经经过了测试，其中阳性显示率为百分之十。最后，我想提醒大家，今天的数据显示，新冠病毒带有明显的种族歧视。我们公共卫生局和其他合伙人正在致力于通过增加测试来。解决新冠病毒给我们各个社区带来的巨大影响。通过测试来保障我们的工作场所对员工及顾客是安全的。只有不断的改善种族和经济方面的因素，我们才能够更进一步的解决对资源分配造成影响的多种因素和问题，进一步解决资源分配的不平衡。只有我们一起努力，确立资源的正确分配，才能解决因此带来的不平衡。对辛苦工作的各位，我千恩万谢的感谢你们。让我们一起努力，在全县范围、全州范围、全国范围内，与仇恨、直及种族主义抗争。让我们携手一起，投入到这一重要的工作中。This concludes for today. This episode of LA Public Health was produced by the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Our department is nationally accredited by the Public Health Accreditation Board and is committed to protecting and improving the health of over 10 million residents in Los Angeles County. For more information about DPH programs and services, visit publichealth.lacounty.gov and follow us on social media at LA Public Health. My name is Steve Baldwin, and you've been listening to the LA Public Health podcast.